and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Now, Robbie is out today. We love our Robbie, but he has the constitution of a Victorian child. So I am thrilled to be joined today by Liz Wolf uh, remotely. Welcome back, Liz. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. I'm joining from Texas. Well, thank you for giving us a, a, a call in from Texas. I know it's a, a difficult to do this remotely, but I'm so glad to be here with you today. We've got a lot of news to get to. So first up, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy are set to resume debt ceiling negotiations tomorrow. The two leaders stepped away from the table after their first meeting in months failed to produce results last week. Biden is facing internal pressure from Hill Democrats to invoke the 14th Amendment to raise the ceiling and avoid sending the country into default. Senator Elizabeth Warren told The Hill, quote, the 14th Amendment is not anyone's first choice. The first choice is that the Republicans raise the debt ceiling because the United States government never, ever, ever, ever defaults on its legal obligations. But if Kevin McCarthy is going to push the United States over a cliff, then it becomes the president's responsibility to find an alternative path. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, however, poured cold water on the proposal when asked about it this weekend. Let's watch. The 14th Amendment, the idea there that was discussed is that um, possibly that amendment would justify just um, issuing debt sufficient to pay all the government's bills and ignore the debt ceiling. And what President Biden said in his remarks is it's really not. There would clearly be litigation around that. It's not a short-run solution. And what I would say, um, you know, it's legally questionable um, whether or not that's a viable strategy. Joining us now to weigh in is The Hill's Michael Schnell. Michael, welcome back to Rising. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So first off, for those who are confused about the 14th Amendment option and how credible it is, especially given this kind of dissonance between what Joe Biden has said and what Janet Yellen is saying. What's the deal there? Yeah, so, Brie, uh, the key word there is is uh, if this will work, right, whether or not the 14th Amendment is actually a viable option. And that's currently up for debate. It depends on who you ask. Some legal scholars are saying this could be a way that President Biden can circumvent Congress and raise the debt limit, or rather continue paying the U.S.'s debts without Congress increasing the debt limit. Others are are saying that this is cannot work, that that the legal analysis is just not there. Now, uh, President Biden has said that the 14th Amendment would not be a fix for the short term because it would almost certainly be tied up in the legal process and, the, and tied up in the courts with a lot of challenges. And we'd have to wait and see if the 14th Amendment is even a viable option. But nonetheless, Senate Democrats want President Biden to keep this on the table because, A, they're nervous that uh, negotiations are not going anywhere and that a default is actually a possibility. And B, they don't want to swallow these steep spending cuts that Speaker McCarthy and House Republicans are pushing for. So we saw something like what uh, Elizabeth Warren said, what you mentioned in the introduction. Some Senate Democrats believe that Biden using the 14th Amendment could potentially be better than having to go through with those spending cuts. Mm. Michael, Liz are Republicans wrong to be worried about this type of runaway spending? I mean, look, uh, 
government spending, federal spending, deficit spending has been a concern in Washington for years. Lawmakers have always said that they want to be able to balance the budget, and that's what Republicans are saying now. Of course, uh, listen, there's credence in their concerns about government spending, but what Democrats are coming back and saying is that this is not about new spending, right? This is about bills that we have to pay for spending that was previously appropriated, including money that was appropriated under former President Trump and during the Biden administration. So Democrats are saying that we can have a conversation about federal spending later on when we're going through the appropriations process, when we're building a budget for fiscal year 2024. But right now, all we're trying to do is pay the bills that we have already appropriated money for. Republicans, however, they see the debt ceiling as a negotiating chip, as a thing that they can bargain on because it is a must-pass issue. So that's sort of where we're seeing this back and forth about deficit spending and about the debt limit. Yeah, I mean, we, we have seen, obviously, under Republican administrations, um, easy votes to lift the debt, debt ceiling over and over and over again. Reagan famously raised it umpteen times when he was president. And despite the fact that um, Trump's own policies, including the uh, Trump-era tax cuts, uh, caused the uh, national debt to go up significantly, even though those tax cuts, 83 percent of every dollar, entered to the benefit of the richest people in America. Now we're in a, having a conversation about whether or not the debt limit is going to be used to justify a number of cuts to the social safety net, et cetera. Can you try to detail the kinds of asks Republicans are making, where they want those cuts to come from? Yeah, so, Demo uh, so you mean where Republicans have said that they yes. want that? Republicans have said that they want to bring um, federal spending back to pre-pandemic levels. Republicans have been saying that they want caps on budgetary spending for the next 10 years so they can rein in spending and try to balance the budget. Uh, and Republicans said that they want to claw back unspent COVID-19 funding, so funds that were given to states uh, during the pandemic that were not used since the pandemic it has now been declared over. The COVID-19 uh, national emergency has ended. Republicans are saying that they want to claw back those unused funds. Uh, now, those are just some of the proposals. Of course, House Republicans passed that sweeping piece of legislation last month that would raise the debt limit by $1.5 trillion or through March 2024, whichever comes first, and it would implement $4.8 trillion in spending, uh, in, I'm sorry, savings, spending cuts, however you want to square it. So those are just some of the proposals that Republicans have put forth in these negotiations. There's actually some indication that, that President Biden is now considering some. After his meeting at the White House with congressional leaders last week, he said he would take a look at clawing back unused COVID-19 funding. Uh, actually, just just yesterday, uh, when he was on a, uh, a bike ride in uh, Delaware, he was pulled aside by reporters and asked some questions about potential work requirements for federal programs. He said that he sort of conveyed an open uh, uh, suggestion that that could be on the table. So we are now seeing some negotiating in terms of these terms for a debt ceiling increase. Yeah. Isn't this just par for the course for Joe Biden? I mean, we saw this when he was attempting to uh, pass student loan forgiveness, which made a whole bunch of flashy headlines that got a bunch of people very excited, understandably so, but then has been held up in the courts ever since. Is this also the type of thing that's legally questionable, where perhaps he will attempt this 14th Amendment strategy, but... It seems like if Yellen, of all people, is saying, hey, this is a little bit legally sus suspect and questionable, is this likely to work? What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the 14th Amendment, I think that's a long shot, right? That's, you know, negotiators have been hopeful that they could reach a deal by the June 1st deadline. That is when Janet Yellen said uh, it is possible that the U.S. could run out of cash to pay its bill. So uh, nobody is looking 
towards the 14th Amendment. As Elizabeth Warren said in what you read earlier, Bree, uh, it's, it's not anyone's first choice. So if it comes to the point where the 14th Amendment has to be invoked, there will be a number of legal scholars and experts weighing in to see, uh, see the credibility of that and if that's actually possible. But I think that's just being kept on the table right now and in conversations as, you know, a break-the-glass strategy, something that if it came to that point that President Biden would use it. But I think that we're pretty far away from that point right now. There are 17 days until June 1st, which is not too much time, especially when you're dealing with Congress. But, how you know, things could change overnight. Uh, this week, there is a meeting between Biden and the four congressional leaders where we could see some movement. So I don't think we're at the point yet of talking about the practicability of actually using the 14th Amendment and seeing it be invoked by President Biden. Of course, it's on the table and it's being floated in conversations. But there is still time for both sides to negotiate a deal. And Democrats have said that there's this concern about establishing a, a precedent here, that if they do start basically opening back up the budget and making these cuts to especially social programs that are very popular for many Americans, that what's to stop it from happening the next time this crisis rolls around in a year, why now are Democrats seemingly open to establishing that precedent as opposed to in other cycles? I think that this just sort of speaks to the stalemate that we've been at. Remember, we first the U.S. first hit the debt limit back in January. That's when the Treasury Department invoked what are called extraordinary measures, uh, measures that could be used to keep the U.S. funded and keep continue paying its bills. Those extraordinary measures are expected to now run out in June. That's why we're now having these increased pressure conversations about the debt limit. But remember, this conversation has been going on since January. And for, you know, better or worse, and, and for the most part, it's remained the same. Republicans have been pushing for spending cuts. Democrats wanted a clean debt ceiling increase. We saw that continued rhetoric from January until now. So I think one reason why people may be floating more of these last-ditch, uh, go-at-it-alone efforts is because the clock is, A, running out, and, B, it's because after a number of months, we have still not seen much progress. Mm. Michael Chanel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. CNN reporter Oliver Darcy was reportedly scolded by his boss, Chris Licht, the network's chairman and CEO, over his critical reporting on the Trump town hall last week. This according to Puck News' Dylan Myers. Licht and other executives reportedly told Darcy that his reporting had been too emotional and then emphasized the importance of being dispassionate. The night after the town hall, Darcy opened his newsletter with, quote, it's hard to see how America was served by the spectacle of lies that aired on CNN Wednesday evening. He added, Caitlin Collins is as tough and knowledgeable of an interviewer as they come. But according to Mediaite, Darcy's overall analysis of the town hall was quite critical of the network. According to Byers on Thursday, Licht said in a morning meeting that he, quote, absolutely unequivocally believed, quote, America was served very well by what we did last night. Byers reported that two sources who heard about the meeting said Darcy was visibly shaken. Byers also reported that another source said, quote, they put the fear of God into him. According to The Hill's reporting, one prominent on-air figure at CNN gave their opinion about the town hall, writing, it was a total debacle, and I've never been more ashamed to work at CNN. Liz, what do you make of this? Is, is this the thing that would make you um, historically ashamed uh, to work at CNN? Um, I think I would probably be semi-ashamed to work at CNN for various other reasons. Um, but no, I mean, 
Caitlin Collins basically had a, a had an impossible job with uh, hosting the the Trump town hall. Uh, she needed to push back on Trump's uh, fabulous claims and some of the the things that he continues to uh, fixate on, like the fact that the election was purportedly stolen from him, even though that we have no evidence to establish that that is the case. So she really had an impossible task before her, and I think she did as decent of a job as she could under those circumstances. Watching, you know, on-air personalities or prominent figures at, you know, major newsrooms melt down is sort of par for the course these days. We've seen a lot of this over the last five years. Uh, and, you know, I at least appreciate that Darcy didn't totally throw his colleague under the bus, but there's also a certain amount of have some decorum, have some professionalism. Uh, the network will absolutely do things you disagree with. How is this in any way surprising? Does Darcy have a point that given how difficult a task was before Caitlin Collins, that the network should have been more prepared to address Trump's rather predictable behavior. So I, I would agree that it's a very difficult challenge and I'm reluctant to pile on to Collins. However, we've been through this rodeo before. We've been through the, both the 2016 and 2020 cycles. And at a certain point, folks in this position of moderating debates and the like realize that because Trump doesn't hesitate to spin his own version of the truth about things, that you need to be able to impeach him, as it were, with his own statements, with audio of him saying things, with audio of other people saying things, in a way that can start to break through the he said, she said of these moments that come up whenever Trump is confronted with something that is politically unpopular. And given that there are strategies that can be deployed to make these kind of events go better, is Darcy on some level correct that CNN was negligent in its hand handling of this event? Well, what do you think Collins should have specifically done differently? Or what do you think CNN should have done differently in this so situation? For one, as I mentioned, having audio recordings that Trump has to respond to. So if he says it's a perfect call, if he says he never requested votes from Raffensperger in Georgia, play the tape, and at very least, that's on the record for the audience to hear for, for itself. Another thing, in addition to having more quotes and audio recordings to cite to Trump directly, is the choice to have the audience comprised of Trump voters the way it was. I get the idea that as a town hall, it's good to have Trump voters ask questions that they care about. At the same time, it created the impression that there's a lot more broad public consensus for some of the things that Trump said that there is no actual public consensus around, like election denialism, for instance. So those are just two things right off the top of my head that CNN could have done differently that maybe are they should things, get blamed for. Are there things that topics that you think Caitlin Collins was soft on specifically? Because I was listening to some of her pushback about stolen election claims and Brad Raffensperger. And then I was listening a little bit to um, some of the January 6th content. And I was pretty impressed by the way she handled those things. But were there specific topics where you think she gave him softballs? It's not that it's softballs. It's that it doesn't matter what Caitlin Collins says if Donald Trump says, no, I didn't. You're lying. You're a nasty woman. You know, but you I, have to figure I out. To I think to some degree she she seemed to prepare quite well for it. And I credit some of the CNN producers for this as well in terms of she basically in real time was doing some pretty aggressive fact checking where he would say, no, like, you know, so and so in this state, you know, said that the, the you know, lots of people were submitting seven votes, 15 votes, whatever. And she was saying, no, like, look, we have this record, this on the record from Georgia. And they, they investigated that. And there was literally no evidence of that. Like at a certain point, what more is there to do? The people who legitimately believe Trump's, uh, you know, su substance list, like baseless lies will 
continue to believe that. And I'm not sure that any amount of fact checking or pushback or even audio recordings directly contradicting that will change that. Well, and that's I, a critique I, in and of itself. Satisfied with that. That, that's a critique What's in and of that? itself. CNN also had to make a decision about what its goals were here. And it seemed like it was asking yeah. questions, even though it was framed as a Republican town hall, a Trump town hall with a Trump audience, they were not asking questions that I believe a Trump audience is very invested in. And in fact, when there were these after, uh, these post town hall polls or, um, uh, focus groups with potential Trump voters, uh, undecided voters or what have you, they didn't uniformly say that they believed Trump in his um, election denial claims, but they felt that Caitlin's focus on it, it being the first question and it taking up a significant chunk of the first part of the debate, of the first part of the town hall, demonstrated that she was more interested in kind of um, pinning Trump down and, and nailing Trump and criticizing Trump and, and setting Trump up for failure, as opposed to being a good faith actor who was trying to elicit what Trump would be willing to do for the working people of this country. Now, you don't have to agree with that, I, but that was the perception that was driven by the choice to focus on that kind of an issue for so much of the debate. I think that's a fair critique, and we know this as journalists, right? There are editorial decisions, um, you know, that are, uh, you know, indicated by the specific questions that you ask and the specific order in which you ask them. Those are editorial decisions. Those are deliberately chosen. Uh, there's an interesting, like it's an innately weird task because CNN's viewership is most likely extremely uh, antagonistic to Trump voters and extremely, um, you know, filled with disdain for Trump. And yet it was bizarre for them to basically uh, populate the town hall with Trump voters. And so in a sense, it's like they're almost attempting to make TV for multiple audiences, but not really quite knowing how to approach mm -hmm. that. Um, they had the people sitting in the town hall actually present um, in, I guess, was it in New Hampshire, I believe? Mm -hmm. uh, and then they had their viewers sitting at home, probably throwing popcorn uh, out, out of rage at the TV. And so you have a little bit of this strange dynamic here. But my question is, like, what is the appropriate formula here? I think all of our Darcy's critiques were not super specific, and so that's a little bit frustrating. And I think there was a lot more hysterics about the, the very platforming of Trump at all. And I saw this from a lot of the sort of media class, this idea of, like, why are we platforming this person? And I've always been much more in the camp of we need to allow our sources the rope with which they can choose to hang themselves, figuratively speaking. Um, you know, it is important to allow people to make their case uh, and to be sort of free speech maximalists about this and to platform uh, powerful people who are attempting to amass more power uh, and allow viewers to make that decision for themselves as to whether or not they want to support those people. But my question is, like, what is the actual appropriate formula and has any network figured out the best way to handle this? Because I certainly don't think Fox has. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you that the, the no platforming arguments are a little silly, but I also think that when you do make this kind of decision, you have to do so responsibly and have a clear idea of what you actually want to get out of this. And I think you're completely right that the messaging was confused in part by having these two audiences that they couldn't decide who to cater to. I also happen to believe that there are questions that all Americans, especially poor and working class Americans, are invested in um, that aren't bipartisan and that all Americans should be invested in knowing what Trump is actually going to do to bring down inflation, how he actually thinks that uh, Biden's policies are driven by driving inflation and not just kind of saying Biden's in office and this is what you have to do. What is Trump going to actually do to resolve the border crisis? Is he going to be challenged on the efficacy of whether the wall is actually having the results that he claims that it's going to have? Whether or not he's actually going to 
uh, cut funding to the war in Ukraine or cut the Biden's military budget, generally speaking, which he seemed to decline to do when it was touched upon at the town hall, but it wasn't really followed up on. So I would argue that having a broader populist framing would kind of cut through the middle and, and make it a much more productive, substantive policy-driven conversation as opposed to the kind of cultural back and forth and the point scoring that ended up happening last week. But I'm really curious to see what the audience has to, to think about, has to say about this, what they think would have made a more productive debate or whether they thought the town hall at the end of the day was really effective. I look forward to reading those in the comments and we'll have a rising for you right after this. Bombshell new poll from Rasmussen shows Robert F. Kennedy Jr. neck and neck with President Biden in a survey of the general electorate. Amongst likely Democratic primary voters, Biden still leads Kennedy 62 to 19. Meanwhile, Axios reports that members of a recent 11-person focus group of swing voters in Georgia want Biden to prove his mental fitness by debating his primary challengers. Now, in a recent interview with Russell Brand, RFK Jr. said Democratic superdelegates will go for Biden at the party convention. Let's listen. You know, the way that the setup of the Democratic Party um, in, at the convention, the way the nomination happens, the uh, superdelegates are very, very influential, and he'll get 100% of those. So uh, I think he's confident at this point, or his handlers are confident, that he can win the nomination without debating me, and that uh, the debate can do nothing except for put him in jeopardy. So I assume that's it, although I, I'm not really looking into I can't really look into his head. All right, Liz, how much do people read into this Rasmussen polls, that, that poll that has RFK Jr. only one point behind Biden? Some folks have said we shouldn't read into it too closely because it's a survey of the general electorate. And of course, Republican voters won't be able to vote in many states in the Democratic primary. What do you think? I mean, there's that, but it's also too early for this type of polling to actually really matter. People need to take all of these really, really early polls with a ginormous grain of salt. The fact of the matter is RFK Jr. is kind of a wackadoodle nutjob conspiracy theorist. And on one hand, uh, you know, we see lots and lots of enthusiasm uh, about uh, former President Donald Trump. And so that's not necessarily disqualifying, apparently. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of people who are super angry about uh, COVID lockdowns and vaccine mandates. And RFK Jr. is the candidate who's sort of seeking to capitalize on this. But fundamentally, like people are turned off by this sort of nut jobbery. And I think it's really too early to uh, over extrapolate from these findings. What do you think? Well, even outside of this particular poll, RFK Jr. has poll numbers even among Democratic voters that people in the Republican primary field, I think, would, you know, sell a limb for. I mean, he's at 20 percent even in other more reputable or more close to tracking the Democratic electorate style polls. And despite that significant showing, especially at this early date in, in the primary process, a lot of people are saying that is exactly why he should have an opportunity to debate Joe Biden the way that other more establishment candidates have been given that opportunity in the past. And substantively, while I think what you're saying about some of his um, uh, the things that he said about the, the, the purported link between vac uh, vaccines and autism, which as of yet has not been proven, and some of the uh, COVID skepticism, which he has been validated about, uh, there's other aspects of his um, 
uh, appeal that I think are really getting undersold, including the extent to which he's carved out a space for himself as one of the more anti-war candidates on the left and on the right. He's also someone who has this long history of being an environmental advocate, an environmental lawyer, in a way that presents some interesting contrast with Joe Biden, who many Democrats are frustrated with, for backtracking and betraying some of his commitments to the, the climate movement. So do you not see any way in which all of those other benefits might look very attractive to an electorate who might be willing to look the other way with respect to some of the um, vaccine stuff? Well, with, with what you were saying about how the link between vaccines and autism has, as of yet, not been proven in your own words, I mean, look, we did this in the 90s with the whole Andrew Wakefield vaccines cause autism's moral panic moment, um, or maybe not moral panic, but, but, you know, panic moment. This is something that has been, uh, you know, the province of some small corner of the American electorate time and time again. We've been re-upping these types of claims for decades now, and they've never held water. They've never been proven to be true. And so the fact that RFK Jr. is so into that and has made that such uh, a talking point really gives me a lot of pause. I mean, you look at some of his his anti-corporate uh, statements, and it's not just that he's sort of this like anti-corporatist, like skeptic of biz big business looking to regulate corporations to a greater degree. It's that he wants to throw many of those people in jail. He calls people treasonous. He has advocated, perhaps off the cuff, but it's still very Trumpy in rhetoric, for for locking up the Koch brothers or or executing them. I mean, my God. This is just a, a pretty delusional and unhinged guy. And I look at the performance of Tulsi Gabbard, uh, an anti-war candidate, as evidence that, you know, despite the fact that I absolutely love his his anti-war positions, and I think we need more anti-war candidates, I mean, Tulsi was kind of that, and she didn't really, you know, do very much, except get, you know, a long-term Tucker Carlson show speaking spot. Well, I think the, the example of adopting an anti-war framing and coasting on that successfully to the White House is, in fact, Donald Trump. You can say what you want about Donald Trump, but rhetorically, he put a lot of distance between himself and the Republican establishment when he was running in 2016 um, and was able to basically pull the whole Republican Party establishment away from the blob consensus in a way that has had lasting side effects, in which I think a lot of the other more mainstream Republican candidates are still trying to reckon with. So I, I think I disagree. I, I do believe that for many voters, whether it's his drain the swamp, anti-corruption rhetoric, whether it's his anti-war rhetoric, whether it's his, you know, CDC COVID accountability rhetoric, there's a lot of appeal there. And it's worth noting also that while the liberal media and a lot of the establishment media is really emphasizing RFK Jr.'s history of talking about vaccines and autism and the like, that is not, in fact, what he is running on. And if the feedback that Donald Trump got from the CNN town hall is any indication, it can be the case that repeated questions about something that the candidate themselves aren't trying to center can backlash against the person who keeps bringing that up more than it re re uh, there's backlash against the candidate. So in the Trump town hall, um, the, uh, the commentator kept asking Trump about 1-6, kept asking Trump about a number of issues that maybe you don't like Trump's answers on. But when folks were asked, potential Trump voters were asked after the town hall whether that reflected negatively on Donald Trump, they said no. They thought that the, the questioner was bullying him into talking about subjects that were in the past when Trump wanted to focus on issues that were germane to the interests of working people. And I think a lot of folks looking at RFK right now are saying, okay, I don't care about the autism stuff. He's not talking about the autism stuff. He's trying to talk about the war in Ukraine 
and these big substantive issues, and everyone's trying to drag him back in the past. And those folks come off as bad faith actors. I, I wouldn't really say they're very far in the past. This is stuff that he is actively talking about. Uh, and, and I mean, you know me, Brie. Like, look, I am as interested in holding the CDC uh, accountable for COVID failings. I think there needs to be a, a much larger reckoning on the topic of school closures. And I've actually, at Reason, been writing about Randy Weingarten, uh, the teachers union head honcho's uh, sort of rehabilitation tour and an attempt to retcon uh, the record on school closures and act like, oh no, everybody was all working together to get kids back in school during the pandemic. And that's not what was happening. We had teachers unions uh, and very powerful political players who were keeping kids out of school far longer than they needed to in a way that was out of step with the global consensus, out of step with much of Western Europe. Uh, so I am more than perhaps most people in favor of holding the CDC accountable and doing a very clear rehashing of pandemic era failures. But RFK Jr. isn't the type of person to reform those agencies and actually make them uh, prepared for, God forbid, the next pandemic, uh, or to fire the people who were responsible for awful public policy decisions that harmed people uh, like you and me and, and children all across the country and, and working people. And I, I mean, the panda, everybody, you know, suffered uh, some of the toll of the pandemic. Uh, and it's time to fire the people who made some of those decisions. But I don't actually believe that RFK Jr. is the person to do that. So I am as sympathetic as they come on that. Because well, he's, well, he's because the alternative is Joe Biden. No, so, no, so. Be, well, because he's a conspiratorial uh, psycho dude who, in fact, isn't just interested in ensuring that uh, political actors get punished in accordance with the law, but has much more sensationalist, almost like, Duterte-esque rhetoric about what we ought to do with political opponents uh, or, or political disfavors. It's actually kind of disturbing. Uh, if you go back through his record, the degree to which he like admires uh, figures like Hugo Chavez and the sort of like jailing of political opponents and all these things, you actually go through what he said. And he's kind of the Trump of the left. And I'm not really keen on Trump. And so I'm not really keen on RFK Jr. either. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly the issue, that a lot of folks are keen on Trump and they're keen on the kind of rhetoric that says it's going to hold political bad actors, people who have stolen um, money through political corruption, people who have done insider trading, people who cost the American public a lot more than your average criminal at CVS, getting away with it because they happen to be in Congress. And having leaders who are willing to actually be critical of the establishment and say that there should be, yes, sometimes criminal penalties for people having criminal actions, even if they're elites, is exactly what the electorate is looking for. I did want to ask you this one last point about the, um, well, hold on, hold on. the super that's, delegates. That's not what he's saying, though, right? Like, he's not saying that they ought to be punished in accordance extrajudicially, extra-legally punished. Uh, and it, I, I see him as this sort of like extreme uh, expander of the carceral state, uh, attempting to use the law not just to punish people who have done authentic wrongdoing, but also to attempt to punish political opponents of his. I, I and that's say, what listen, I, I, I've listened to a number of his speeches um, since he announced. I haven't seen any of those statements. I don't want to contradict you. I just want to put out there that I, I haven't seen anything that corroborates what you're saying, but it's worth definitely checking in and, and following up on. I, I direct you to Matt Welch's work at Reason Magazine. He has gone through uh, the archive of RFK Jr. Uh, hobby horses and uh, statements in the past, and he has excavated some really fascinating stuff. So you're not saying that these are things that he said in the context of his presidential run? No, I think he's absolutely trying to sort of like put on a little bit of a of a more socially acceptable veneer now. I mean, we're also what a few. When did he announce? Like a few months ago, a few weeks ago? Not even a few so weeks ago. 
Okay, so so we're, we're pretty fresh here. But part of the job of political journalists and commentators is to not just look at the way that they're uh, doing their PR campaign now and the things that they're saying now, but to look at what they've said over the course of a long career in politics. Uh, sure, and I, think I, that I also think that a if, lot of voters are going to appreciate you know, when you are making the kind of rhetorical statements that you make in the context of a casual everyday life, I might sit here over a dinner table and say, ah, uh, yes, we got to bring the we got to bring the bad guys down, lock them up, lock her up. That's the kind of rhetoric that is very common in informal settings. And I, I think a lot of folks are going to be judging how he frames his presidential run very differently. Although I think you're perfectly right. It's fair to pull those comments up and let people judge for themselves. All right, we'll continue to follow this story for sure. More rising right after this. Turkey's President Erdogan is facing his uh, in the country's first presidential runoff election as Erdogan garnered 49.5 percent of votes against challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who secured 44.9 percent with nearly all ballots counted. Erdogan, who has led Turkey for 20 years, seems to have the edge to emerge with another five-year term. Research analyst at the Quincy Institute, Steve Simon, joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Steve. Tell us, what are the stakes of this election? Well, the stakes are high both for um, the people of Turkey and, and also for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, for the people of Turkey, I, the issue is, um, uh, do they want to live under um, uh, uh, a ruler of authoritarian instincts uh, like, like Erdogan? who has done uh, much to suborn the judiciary uh, and uh, command the media and suppress opposition uh, in means uh, uh, fair and foul. He's also mismanaged the economy such that inflation is at, um, uh, well, very nearly record heights uh, in Turkey. Uh, corruption uh, has uh, uh, increased greatly in that country. So there are a lot of reasons why uh, if you were uh, Turkish, uh, you might not uh, want to see Erdogan have another uh, five-year term. But Turkish society on, the, on, 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 on this score is very deeply split. Uh, so, and, and I think that's reflected uh, in, the, in the first round uh, results, which didn't give a majority uh, to either candidate. I think, um, uh, you know, many Turks uh, favor Erdogan, uh, in part because uh, they're convinced uh, by his very nationalistic rhetoric um, and, and by his religious instincts and the extent to which he identifies uh, with, um, uh, with his faith and claims to represent it, actually. So um, uh, I think you've got uh, a deeply split population, um, many of whom uh, would like to see a change uh, for, I think, personally speaking, good reasons. Uh, but there are many who, who like the way uh, Erdogan has governed and what they think he represents. For U.S. foreign policy, uh, you know, Turkey, uh, Turkey has represented uh, something of a foreign policy challenge. Uh, in the past years, um, under uh, while Erdogan has been uh, in, in in charge of of Turkish of the Turkish state, uh, Turkey is as 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 we know a member of NATO, uh, but it's been a very difficult and obstreperous uh, member of 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 that alliance under uh, Erdogan's administration. 
Uh, and among other things, uh, in this regard, uh, uh, Turkey has established uh, closer relationships um, uh, with countries like Russia, uh, with uh, uh, which, uh, from a NATO perspective and, a, and the perspective of Washington, doesn't really serve U.S. or or alliance um, uh, interests. And in this regard, he has impeded uh, the accession to NATO of two states that wished to join after the Russian-Ukrainian uh, uh, war began. Uh, the one is Finland. Uh, they finally made it in. But Sweden uh, is currently still blocked by, uh, by Turkey. So hence the, the stakes for the United States in this election. Do you think it's imprudent for Twitter to be blocking some content related to this election? I was sort of surprised to see that uh, from Elon Musk, uh, and I believe that that was making the rounds earlier today. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. And it just, uh, it underscored the fundamental mystery of uh, Elon Musk's uh, values <laughs> and priorities, and in fact, his very reasoning, um, because this would seem to run counter to um, a position that he's taken um, uh, on on freedom of speech on Twitter and political content, uh, so uh, I really uh, I, I really can only I can't even speculate on what's motivating uh, Musk in in this way. Uh, I've been following the work I've been Talk following the work of uh, Sarah McLaughlin at uh, Fire, who has done a really great job documenting the degree to which Musk has been pretty interested in bending to the uh, censorship requests of Modi in India and then also of Xi Jinping in China. And I'm beginning to be very worried that we're going to see a similar situation play out with suppressing content related to Turkey. Look, that, that's quite possible. Uh, but, the, you know, the parties now have a little over a month, uh, the, the two contending parties in Turkey, uh, to appeal for votes. And I imagine uh, that each side is going to do whatever it can um, uh, to improve uh, uh, their respective positions before May 28th, uh, the date of the of the runoff election. And among the tools uh, that are available or uh, to the to the government, first of all, is media manipulation, and whether or not Elon um, uh, Musk. Uh, tacitly cooperated or directly cooperated with uh, Erdogan's um, uh, campaign uh, for the runoff elections. I think Erdogan's control over the Turkish media is so tight and so comprehensive that it's difficult to see what effect, uh, you know, manipulation of uh, Twitter content by Musk uh, will will make uh, it might make it might have an effect on the margins, uh, and and that effect will probably run counter to Erdogan's opponent uh, in in his interests. But I think you know the key issue here uh, is the way uh, Erdogan uh, has access to and control of uh, Turkish media, irrespective of of what Twitter does or doesn't do. Well, to the extent that, you know, uh, his opponent can get his pitch across, what kind of pitch is uh, Khalid Sterolu making to the Turkish people right now? Can you help us understand the contrasts that are being presented in this election? Yes, uh, of course. Um, and that's, that's a great question. Uh, uh, you know, Erdogan is pressing uh, uh, his nationalist credentials. Uh, 
Uh, he's uh, defending Turkey's interests uh, internationally. Uh, he's doing so um, uh, without kowtowing uh, to other powers, particularly the United States. Um, he's blamed the, the United States and the Biden administration uh, for Turkey's uh, difficulties. And uh, he has accused the Biden administration of interfering uh, in Turkish politics. And this nationalist uh, approach uh, to his uh, uh, to his campaign and the tone of his campaign uh, finds a resonant um, uh, accord in, well, uh, in Turkish society. Is there any validity to the claims uh, of U.S. interference? I know that some listeners to this show are going to hear um, that Turkey was opposed to uh, NATO membership of some of these uh, Russia-bordered countries and say, well, that was a good thing because that was the sort of thing that was escalating the conflict with Russia and perhaps some might even say provoked Russia in the first instance. Um, why, you know, is Erdogan wrong to be drawing—raising uh, those kinds of criticisms? Well, um, you know, Erdogan, I think, has Turkish interests um, at at heart, as well as his own political interests, and it's not clear that um, he actually sees a difference uh, between uh, between those two things. Uh, from his perspective, blocking Sweden from uh, accession to NATO uh, was an extension of. Uh, uh, of his uh, uh, concern over the stability of Turkish politics, because he claims that opponents of of, uh, of his uh, rule in Turkey have found um, uh, have found uh, safe haven in Sweden. Uh, mm. The Swedes, of course, say that you know they're just giving shelter to political uh, asylees, and 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 it's no more complicated uh, than that. But. It's, it's a story that can easily be cast in a convincing way as a manifestation of uh, Erdogan's commitment to protecting Turkish interests abroad. Now, um, uh, Kilic Doglu has, uh, you know, a very different approach. You know, he claims that uh, Erdogan has actually damaged Turkey's interests uh, overseas by alienating the United States and NATO. And... Uh, and his uh, campaign position is that he would restore uh, the former um, uh, amity and cooperation uh, that had existed in previous decades between uh, uh, Turkey and, and the NATO alliance and, and Washington, D.C. So it's a pretty stark difference in how those two can candidates um, define a Turkish national interest. Hmm. Well, we appreciate you joining us today so much for offering this kind of clar clarifying commentary on a part of the world that's getting not enough attention. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. Throwback Monday. Liberal critics of CNN's Caitlin Collins have unearthed an old video of the then Fox News host Tucker Carlson interviewing the anchor about Donald Trump's attacks on the press back in 2017. Let's hear what she had to say. So the president has attacked the press intensely like no other president has ever gone after the press like this. What does that do to the reporters covering the briefing every day? People are a little hysterical about his criticism. Yes, he hates the press. Yes, he's very vocal about it. But what president has not hated the press? We right. make their lives harder and they all hate us. They may not all talk about it, but they definitely hate yes, us. Yes, they do. 
So, but people are taking it really personally, and you shouldn't take the president's criticism personally. It shouldn't affect your reporting. But you can tell when you read the New York Times and CNN that it does affect their reporting, and that's not what should happen. I don't take my cues from the, rep the, the, the president. I report on him. I don't report to him. So you think that there's there's a personal element to this? They don't like Definitely. him because he criticized because he calls them out them. by their names, and they don't like that. And then they get a lot of heat on Twitter, and then it makes them resent him. Not for his policies and not for not following through on his campaign promises, but for who he is as a person. And that's not your job. Your job is not to get your feelings hurt. So, Liz, people were having these weird debates after the CNN town hall about whether or not Caitlin Collins had a bias in one way or the other or was more or less equipped to do the job or was or was not a nasty woman on the basis of her prior politics. Is this video clarifying in any way to you? The video is pretty innocuous. Uh, I don't really disagree with it. Uh, you know, it's it makes me uh, miss Tucker Carlson, RIP, gone too soon. Um, not actually. But no, I mean, she didn't say anything particularly uh, wild or fringe. I mean, the fact of the matter is she worked at Daily Caller for a bit. She said quite a few Fox News hits. Um, I'm not really particularly getting an ultra conservative vibe uh, in her reporting. And I think she, to, to, if anything, it is to CNN's credit in terms of restoring some credibility with the American people, if they have some people who are maybe more moderate or possibly even coming from a conservative background, if you want people who can authentically understand the values and beliefs of the rest of the country, not just half of the country, but 330 million people in this country, then perhaps it makes sense to get people with a little bit more of a conservative pedigree, especially if they're pretty apolitical and moderate now. Yeah, I would love to see more people on CNN and all the channels who not only reflected some real ideological diversity, but also some class diversity, getting some people with some poor working class backgrounds, people who maybe hadn't been to college, uh, people who had not spent their whole lives in, in, a media, uh, from, in a media career would be really elucidating. But to come back to Caitlin Collins, some people have argued that she was adversarial to Trump from a sort of a liberal person's perspective, arguing that, you know, she has it out for Trump, um, that she, as Trump put it, was a nasty woman, that she was unfair to him because of some fundamental disagreement, um, ideological disagreement that you would expect between, say, Donald Trump and your typical liberal-leaning CNN host. But it does seem from her background and from her defense of Trump there, which I think is principled. I do think that she's right that a lot of the critique around Trump criticizing the press was somewhat overblown. Um, but, but, but are people then right to say, well, no, you can disagree with what Caitlin Collins said or how she handled it, but it wasn't an ideological bias that was coming out there, that she, is, in fact, is a conservative and there's diversity, obviously, within the conservative movement, but you can't write her off as simply, you know, a lib who was mad at Trump? What I read it as is a relatively young person sort of being uh, primed to be on the prime time, uh, in the prime time slot. She is pretty young, uh, as we were talking about before we started rolling. Uh, I know she's making you feel very old, Brianna. Uh, I but didn't no, say I mean, that. I said what, that she felt young, and perhaps I was reflective of a lack of experience. No, no commentary on my yeah. own age there, Liz. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, she's what, 31 or 32. She has been on the air for a while, but she's relatively new in terms of being in this type of ultra prominent role. 
it would seem like CNN is trying to sort of get their bearings uh, and focus specifically on whether or not this is the appropriate strategy coming into this new election. I think they're attempting to, you know, there's been a huge ratings nosedive across lots and lots of the cable news networks, and CNN is trying to figure out how they want to set themselves up. So I'm not sure that any of this is quite as deliberately thought out as people might claim, I am curious about whether they're throwing stuff at the wall, one of those things being Caitlin Collins, and seeing what sticks and seeing what works. I totally agree with you, actually, to your point about needing more working class people in positions in the media and how it is probably a good thing that she is from, like, I believe, fairly rural Alabama. Um, you know, I don't know her her full background, but I wonder how reporting would change and how... Um, media would become more representative of the American people uh, and more uh, relevant to them if we, you know, didn't have uh, college diploma requirements or things like that. It is not clear to me, you know, journalism used to be sort of considered a trade uh, more than this like white collar profession that it is sort of considered now. What would happen if we reduced some of these barriers to entry and allowed all kinds of people who perhaps have had non-traditional routes um, and yet can still go out and talk to people and can still go out and do shoe leather reporting, what would happen if we put them on our screens? Yeah. I think that that could possibly be much more representative. And it's to your point that we were talking about earlier where, you know, one of the critiques of that CNN town hall is that it was focused on January 6th and it was focused on the election denier claims. And although I think some amount of airtime devoted toward that is reasonable, there are a whole bunch of other things that actually affect people's day-to-day -day lives, like inflation, that for whatever reason, they just don't devote as much focus to. And I wonder if you had more, for lack of a better word, normal people or people who've come from places where legitimately people's pockets are hurting and the price of eggs or the price of milk going up is a huge concern for them and their families versus people who come from a much more pedigreed world uh, where everybody in their social circles went to Ivy Leagues. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. but I wonder whether that could allow people to get back to the issues. I think that's right. And I think it also, to the extent that this could be a criticism of Caitlin Collins, there were people in the audience at the town hall that asked those kinds of questions, um, more economic policy-rooted questions that Trump kind of blew through in a way that I think might have been perceived as disrespectful by, by some viewers who really do want to know the answers to those questions. And Caitlin Collins could have used that moment to double back and defend the Americans asking questions of their potential president instead of picking other kinds of battles up on stage. And she could have, to the extent that she was being framed as fundamentally antagonistic to Trump because of her background, uh, wrapping herself in the question of the, of the Trump-leaning voter in the audience could have helped give her more credibility in the context of that as well. Um, I, 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 I did want to also just uh, follow up and ask on this kind of Caitlin Collins' criticism point, it does seem to me that that part of why she's being framed the way she's been framed and why there's this debate about whether or not she's secretly a liberal, et cetera, is because there is this trend, as you've pointed out, of conservatives being on networks like MSNBC and CNN, but only if they are sort of never Trump conservatives. And there does seem to be some ambivalence about having someone who's genuinely representing what I think the main thrust of the Republican Party is right now on those liberal outlets. So I do appreciate critics who say, yeah, sure, she might be a Republican, but she's a Republican in name only, and there's not any real appetite for actually engaging in what Trumpism looks like on those mainstream channels. Do you think that, that the, the, these channels would benefit from having more truly Trump Republicans represented on their panels? 
I think it's possible. But the, the real thing that I kind of wish uh, the thrust of this conversation was focused on or the thrust of a lot of the dialogue was is, you know, we saw this a little bit with Michelle Fields. I don't know if you recall that. We saw this a little bit with Megyn Kelly. But it's like whenever there is a prominent female journalist who goes head to head with Trump uh, or interacts with uh, his high level uh, staffers and is in any way either mistreated or in a position where they're supposed to be pushing back on him. It's sort of the actual journalist whose past and record and personality and demeanor sort of become the focus and, and the fixation of a lot of the media. And this is something I think we saw this a lot with Megyn Kelly. And I think we're seeing this a lot now. And I'm sort of curious about like, what good does this exactly do? Um, you know, I think to some degree there was the old school, uh, of thought in journalism of, you know, you should kind of not make yourself the subject of the story. And to some degree with TV journalists, uh, with, with anchors, uh, and other hosts, like it's, it's a different ball game to some degree, but it's a little bit odd that there's so much fixation on her as a personality and a fixture within CNN uh, and, you know, trying to sort of speculate what role she will play and what her past was and all these things, as opposed to actually focusing on the political candidate, the person seeking power. Well, I mean, that's precisely because Donald Trump is able to weaponize the crowd's frustration with her and the per perception as being a bad faith questioner to his own benefit. And so the question becomes for folks like CNN, who might want to put events like this on going forward, how do you guard against that? Do you have to pick a, let's say, older male reporter because they are somewhat more insulated against these kinds of um, this kind of manipulation by Donald Trump, for better or for worse, is that fair? Or are there strategies, are there takeaways that you can learn from where the exchange between Caitlin Collins and Donald Trump went awry that can be remedied but with think, anybody, regardless of their gender or age? But I think Trump is masterful at this no matter what. He always finds a way to make it personal. Uh, he always finds a way to... Um, sort of uh, lodge the absolute best, most middle school insults at the person that he is interacting with, whether it be low energy, was it low energy Jeb or little Marco or God forbid, whatever name he's come up with uh, for Ron DeSantis, who is unfortunately extraordinarily short, um, which I'm sure he'll have a field day with. I mean, Trump is a mastermind at that specific uh, type of middle school cattiness. And so I'm, I'm not totally sure that there's an actual strategy change that ought to result from this. I think it's predictable. Um, Trump's reaction to Caitlin Collins is somewhat predictable. I agree it is predictable, but that's, to me, part of the problem, because I don't think that every Trump interview has been bad. And I think there are a number of journalists like Chris Wallace who have been very effective, both with people like Donald Trump and also recently with a great interview with Bernie Sanders, where I think he held him to account for some of his uh, endorsements and positive statements about Joe Biden, which are out of step with um, his past positions. But this, this, is, this is interesting. This is robust. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how this is going to play out as folks continue to strategize about how to report on Donald Trump going into the 2024 election season. Stay tuned. We'll have more rising for you right after this. MSNBC's Joanne Reed slams CNN host Anderson Cooper's defense of last week's Trump Town Hall on the network. Now, that is what you call a straw man argument, especially that the, the only two options available to you are listening to a former president mock a woman a jury found that he sexually abused while the audience laughs and applauds, or 
pretending 74 million Americans who voted for Trump don't exist. But that has become a familiar tune, mainly from billionaire libertarians like Elon Musk and billionaire media moguls like Fox's Rupert Murdoch, that free speech doesn't just mean what the First Amendment says it means, that the government cannot restrict or require certain speech, but rather that unless you are willing to subject yourself personally to the farthest right, most virulently racist, misogynistic, and offensive viewpoints, just fill your psyche with it online, in the university lecture hall, or on CNN, you're against free speech. The views Sunny Hostin also had some criticism about Cooper's defense. I think that you don't give a bigot and a racist and a misogynist and a liar and a cheater and a sexual abuser and a, a defamer a platform of three million people. And I'm saddened, uh, I used to work for CNN for quite some time. Anderson Cooper has been my friend for over 20 years. And I'm saddened that he tried to gaslight me yesterday by saying that people are in silos. People aren't living in a silo. They are choosing to listen to the lies or not. So what do you, what do you make of this, Liz? Is Are these commentators right that there's something that's jumped the shark about what it means to have free speech or to be open to other people's viewpoints? Is this a kind of misapplication of the princ that principle, trying to lump it on to what happened at the CNN town hall? What, what's going on here? So much of the free speech discourse is uh, incredibly clumsy, frankly. And I see that happening with uh, with Joyanne Reed, and I see this also happening with Sunny Hostin and many of the, the ladies on The View. I mean, there is a—people who are concerned about free speech— are fundamentally, first and foremost, I believe, concerned about uh, government suppression of speech and you know things explicitly uh, prohibited by the First Amendment. But there is also this other thing, which is culture of free speech. It is what types of viewpoints are people exposed to? In which types of environments are they exposed to them? Um, are we free speech maximalists with what we allow um, to exist on different platforms on the internet? And so, you know, what, whether or not Twitter is, is banning somebody uh, and suppressing their speech or not, that's not really a First Amendment related issue. That's a culture of free speech issue. And it, it really bothers me when I see people uh, muddy the waters on this front. Um, I think it is very important to have have a free speech maximalist mindset uh, and to make it so that as many people can be exposed to Trump's viewpoints as possible, in part because I trust that they're not rubes and they're not idiots. And, you know, they will see a lot of Trump's absurdity and hyperbole and lies for what they are. Some people are susceptible and compelled by Trump's views. And I'm not sure that any amount of MSNBC hectoring or, um, you know, antagonism from the ladies on The View will change those those views. Uh, so, it, you know, I, I very much come down to a free speech maximalist perspective where we need to be able to hear all kinds of views, a very, very wide range, and then decide for ourselves, because we are autonomous individuals, what is compelling to us. Yeah, I'm kind of confused here because... As far as I understand it, Elon Musk didn't force CNN to host a Trump town hall. So I really don't understand. I understand there's an ongoing argument about a culture of free speech absolutism and what that means. And, and there's some judgments that go back and forth about how the left doesn't really care about free speech because it objects to certain kinds of speech on a principled basis, even if it doesn't want them to be actually suppressed. And these, this bickering goes on online. But it seems to me that what drove the decision to have Donald Trump do a town hall on CNN was CNN's much-discussed bad ratings and them doing the same kind of 
ratings grab that so many networks did back in 2016 and which so many people I think are looking forward to in this Trump 2024 run as legacy media struggles in this particular historical moment. So it does seem like these hosts are displacing blame here when ultimately the, the, the onus, whatever you thought about the scene in town hall, the, it, it lies at the feet, the responsibility lies at the feet at Chris Licht, CEO, and people like Anderson Cooper, who not only have participated in this, but defended it. And we should probably read what Anderson Cooper actually said, given that Sidney Hostin was responding directly to his remarks. Cooper said, um, you have every right to be outraged today and angry and never watch this network again, but do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is going to make that person go away? Yeah, to me, that's really stunning that that is a controversial thing to say. And and the degree to which Sonny Hostin is uh, sort of rejecting the premise that people exist in political silos is uh, entirely stupid and crazy. I mean, if you look at the work of uh, people like Jonathan Haidt, uh, who wrote The Righteous Mind years ago, it is very focused on this like elephant writer type concept, this idea that people sort of have these very tribal political affiliations. And, um, you know, I, I highly recommend that book for, for more on that. But this idea that they almost have this like, moral political intuition and then they fit in all the facts to follow and justify that later on. And so it's it's this very emotional, very tribal process. Um, but the fact that people exist in their political silos is, I think, pretty hard to take issue with. Uh, and I think it's there's something kind of jarring to the fact that Sonny Hostin or somebody who is, um, you know, a prominent liberal in the media is acting like, is, is attempting to tell you know, people like me, that my viewpoints are well represented in the media. Like I am a, a pro-life feminist, right? Like, is that viewpoint actually represented in much of the mainstream media? I really, I don't personally see it. And I am looking for that type of thing. Um, you know, I see predominant pro-choice media bias. And so for her to say that, you know, and that's just using that as one example, for her to say that all viewpoints are represented here and that people aren't operating in their political silos is, I think, totally incorrect. Uh, and I think the fact that there are legions of people who would dispute that, who are of the opposite political persuasion as, persuasion as her, is evidence uh, that she's wrong. Well, to push back, I don't know that the argument that Sunny is making is that people aren't in political silos. I think that she's rightly pointing out that Cooper's statement sort of misses the point. The, criti the criticism isn't that I mean, to be sure, some people said absolutely CNN shouldn't do a Trump, uh, Trump town hall at all. You shouldn't platform mm -hmm. Trump, that kind of argument. And I completely agree that that's ridiculous. And I think there's a lot of benefit into poking through political silos by doing exactly what CNN did. But I do think that being the case, there's still room for a critique of how CNN managed the town hall. I, as we discussed but in earlier blogs. that's not what Sonny was saying. I'm sorry? Right? But that's not, the, that's not what Hostin was critiquing. Well, no. Well, she was saying that um, Anderson Cooper was gaslighting her by making this an issue of who's in a political silo, when I don't think that that necessarily is the, the total of the criticism of what happened in the CNN town hall. I, I, and I would mm. agree with Anderson Cooper that people who objected to it on, on the basis that it should not do it point blank, period, are wrong. But I would disagree with um, uh, Anderson Cooper to the extent that he is collapsing the critique into this one narrow one, when I think there's plenty to be said about how CNN handled the situation. Yeah, I think it's a little bit tough to figure out what Hostin is saying. The thing that I am reacting to, especially that I find to be completely tired, just this tired rehashing of what we did for, you know, the better part of two years, the first time Trump ran for president is, um, or actually specifically while he was in office for those entire four years, 
you know, the laundry listing that she was doing for rhetorical, like dramatic effect was driving me absolutely crazy. You know, listing off, you know, a sexual abuser, a known liar, an election denier, all these things. And it's like your audience, like we've already sort of established this, right? But you are doing this for dramatic effect and to attempt to make a, you know, deplatforming case. And the fact of the matter is he is a powerful person seeking political office in the United States. Uh, you know, I think some amount of platforming is, is very appropriate. Uh, and I'm sort of, there, there's this, like really, really dramatic pearl clutching hand wringing that happens. And, and her laundry listing like that is I think evidence of that. I do think that, um, Joy Reid's description of Elon Musk as a billionaire libertarian, I took great issue with, because I think you're totally right. A, he's not the one making these decisions. Uh, he is the Twitter CEO and pretty bad at it, might I add. Um, he's not, you know, a, a head honcho at CNN making these calls, but also I don't know if he's really much of a free speech maximalist anymore, really like considers himself that much of a libertarian. He is very interested in bending to the will of, um, regimes in India and China and sort of attempting to, uh, censor people if that is the way that he can stay in their good graces. So I think it's very important to um, be clear about that and to not have such a, an American-centric viewpoint when it comes to that. I think he's actually really compromised a lot of his formerly free speech bona fides. I think that's an excellent point, Liz. All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Reporting from The Lever, multiple authors, including founder David Sirota, examine how an overarching inflation myth crushed the working class and how corporate media lied about the main source of price increases. Sirota tweeted, we were told mergers create efficiencies that ultimately reduce prices for consumers. That was a lie. When the resulting oligopolies started jacking up prices, corporate pundits blamed workers' wages and government aid to the poor. That was also a lie. Economics professor Isabella Weber tweeted yesterday, are profits a driver of inflation? Considered unreal, econ unreal economics not long ago, more and more evidence is forthcoming, including from central banks. I discussed my unlikely intellectual journey and how sellers' inflation is gaining currency. Joining us now to weigh in on this debate that has been really bubbling on Twitter for the last week or so is senior editor at The Lever, Andrew Perez. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So just to, to set the stage for folks who haven't been following, following this, tell me if I'm right about this. There's been a lot of folks on the left who, for some time during the course of the pandemic, have been pointing to greedflation as one of the main drivers of the inflation crisis. In other words, corporations raising prices beyond that which they need to recoup any um, losses that the supply chain crisis is causing for them. And for a long time, there was a great deal of pushback against that. Now it seems there's a growing consensus that greedflation has played a role. Why do you think there is now a growing consensus? And why are some still digging in their heels and saying that greedflation isn't really real? Sure. Um, yeah, well, so progressives really have been arguing for, you know, maybe the better part of two years now that, um, you know, like ever since inflation started, um, that corporate profits were playing a really key role, a really key factor here. Um, you know, there, there were studies really kind of early on um, in 2021 from the, you know, Economic Policy Institute 2021 and 2022, showing that um, that corporate profits were making up a disproportionate share of uh, price hikes that people have been experiencing. And yeah, I mean, there has been a lot of pushback from, um, you know, sort of the beltway pundit class, um, you know, some of the sort of like best known economists in Washington, you know, saying that that wasn't really a factor 
um, despite you know reams and reams of data showing that it was the case. And yeah, what we've seen in the last few weeks has been, um, you know, we've seen more acceptance of this idea um, in in you know outlets where we wouldn't have necessarily expected it, like the Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, the 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 chief economist at UBS, the the banking giant, said that um, you know we're we're actually we've been living through a wave of profit-led inflation. Um, so there has been a big change here. And, we, you know, we tried to, you know, kind of go back to the pundits who had been really arguing against this and see see what they uh, what they had to say for themselves now and, you know, didn't did not really get any satisfying feedback. So, I mean, to, to listeners who might be thinking, well, companies are supposed to make profit. That's their objective. What's the problem here? How can you tell that the profits that are being earned right now are kind of the bad kind that are causing inflation versus them realizing that they can charge what the market will bear and they're just doing the thing that we've been told since our first economics class companies are supposed to do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think that really kind of has been one of the, the pushbacks here is, is that like, oh, well, like corporate greed isn't increasing, right? That's a constant. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, what the data has been telling us all along is that profits are helping drive inflation. Um, you know, a disproportionate share in a way that really hadn't been seen in, in many decades. Um, in other inflationary crises, you did not have this massive expansion of corporate profits like we've seen. And, you know, even like anecdotally, we've all seen that for the last several years, right? It's been like report after report for much of the last two years about how about how companies were booking record profits even amid, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. But, you know, that is the other thing here, right? Like we've all been living through a pandemic for the last two years, like or last three years, like like price gouging in a pandemic is, you know, uh, unacceptable. It's not something we should just say, oh, that's normal. That's normal corporate behavior, right? Like there, there, there is an end result here that affects people in a really concrete way. Yeah, it's worth noting that there have been other times in American history and certainly in global history where there have been, you know, laws promulgated to prevent exactly that kind of price, price gouging uh, during a crisis. We are at a place, I think, in American politics where there is a lot of pushback against the idea that when there is a winner and a loser between consumers and corporations, that the loser, that the, that the state should ever intercede on the behalf of consumers. Um, there's been, I think, a lot of narrative building um, successfully by conservatives that say, say that tinkering with the system in order to benefit the rich, whether it's through tax cuts or other kind of tax advantages that allow people to transfer wealth, um, et cetera, that, that sort of thing doesn't get a lot of scrutiny. But if you ever try to re-rig the system in the benefit of the working people, of consumers, of people who are whose money keeps these, um, whose money and labor keeps these companies going, then that is somehow an unfair rigging. A morning consult poll published last month found that 35% of voters say maximized corporate profits as a primary driver of inflation are, are in fact, a primary driver of inflation. According to the survey, the electorate is, quote, increasingly likely to blame rising inflation on supply chain issues, while nearly two in three voters say corporations have enjoyed increased profitability in recent years. Andrew, what kind of evidence do you think you know voters consumers are pointing to to kind of come to this realization despite the fact that as you've mentioned these mainstream outlets have not been really reporting reporting this out until recently yeah i mean i think people probably instinctively kind of understand you know when they go to the store and everything is more expensive um so i i think that definitely is probably playing a big role everyone has seen reports about 
um, corporate profits going up, up, up for most of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, I think you're right. There's definitely been like this narrative against, um, you know, any efforts to uh, I- introduce price controls that that could affect um, supply. But, you know, I mean, on the other hand, what, what's been happening is the Federal Reserve, in order to combat inflation, has been raising interest rates. And that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, is designed to drive down uh, worker power, designed to, uh, you know, they want to increase unemployment, drive down wages, um, you know, with the, with the idea that that has been what, you know, is driving inflation, even though we see that's not really the case. So, you know, I mean, I think that kind of shows you the, the options here. Like, you know, you could either take it out on workers who are already, you know, suffering through a pandemic, who, you know, who are seeing their wages not keep up with inflation, you know, even even with the, the sort of like, uh, you know, wage increases we've seen in the last few years, they've not kept up with inflation at all. So, you know, it's, it's either you could go after workers who are already suffering or you could, you know, maybe try to take a bite out of the companies that are actively price gouging in this country right now. I think it's also worth noting that some of these CEOs have been telling on themselves in earnings calls throughout the pandemic, really bragging about the extent to which they're able to up profits because of the supply chain crisis kind of um, holding space for the possibility that it isn't just purely a corporate greed uh, issue. Do you think the fact that we're now coming out of the pandemic, at least in terms of the economic effects with the supply chain issues, and the prices on a number of goods still staying high is part of what is causing the public and maybe even some of these more um, institutional outlets to finally admit, okay, we can no longer continue to blame this on a supply chain issue? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do I do think that's definitely a big factor here. Um, you know, the, the UBS study or the, the comment from their chief economist is really interesting because what, what he was saying is that, um, you know, companies have been able to raise prices in large part due to the kind of, you know, media environment, the, the like, you know, the narratives around around uh, the pandemic, you know, the idea that like there's this supply chain crisis, um, you know, the, it, it's giving companies, you know, stories that they can spin in order to raise prices far beyond what they need. And, and yeah, as as this sort of like additional factors level off, it becomes much harder to much harder to justify the, the prices that they're charging right now. Hmm. Well, I really appreciate you weighing in on this, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. We'll have more rising right after this. According to the New York Times, the United States is facing an intergenerational transfer of wealth, the likes of which we've never seen before. The wealthiest 10% of households will be giving and receiving a majority of the riches. Within that range, the top 1%, which hold about as much wealth as the bottom 90%, will dictate the broadest share of the money flow. The more diverse bottom 50% of households will account for only 8% of the transfers. This comes as Huffington Post reports that President Biden has not ruled out stricter work requirements for SNAP benefits. So are we are we in Hunger Games times, Liz, where we're seeing these kind of unprecedented wealth transfers, much of it uh, tax-free, to a next generation at the same time where the country, the our leaders are telling folks to tighten their belts and have and, and the poorest among us have to work harder for the meager benefits there are. The fact of the matter is we should not be considering wealth as it compares to the wealth of our neighbors. We should be considering, um, you know, 
absolute wealth, whether or not we can afford basic necessities, uh, and whether or not we have ever more access to ever cheaper goods. You look at the price of a plane ticket uh, from the 1970s until today, and you see it's gone down by, you know, something like at least twofold, possibly even fourfold. It is so much uh, cheaper to, I think I, I might even be getting those numbers wrong. It might be even greater than that. Uh, it is cheaper than ever before and, and faster to fly across the country. You look at the price of household appliances, um, buying a dishwasher or a washing machine or a stove. It is cheaper than ever before. You know, when those things were rolled out in the 50s and 60s and began to proliferate, they were very expensive and the types of things that only the very top could afford. But nowadays, you have access to that uh, even among the very uh, poorest of the poor. Uh, you go into NYCHA public housing projects and people have access to those household appliances. Although, of course, we want people to uh, become wealthier and have the ability to uh, spend their money uh you know, less on necessities, but more on the types of things that will make their lives richer and more joyful. The fact of the matter is it is easier than ever before to have access to so much splendor and abundance. And I think we can really uh, thank capitalism and markets for this. I'm sure you can appreciate that a lot of folks will say, well, what good does it do me to be able to afford a plane ticket or a toaster in the abstract if the average cost of a home, and this is pointed out in the New York Times article, is 500% more than it was in 1983. Folks are pointing out that the previous generations have been able to amass wealth in a way that younger generations, millennials and Gen Z, have not been, precisely because the historical ways that people are able to gain wealth were foreclosed um, by dramatically changed economic conditions, including the dramatically high increase in the cost of things like housing and education. So what do you say to someone who says, OK, I might be able to afford a toaster, but I can't afford a home to put it in? Well, I think a toaster is a really bad example, right? Because a toaster is something that's like not actually a necessity. But if you actually look at, um, you know, the process, everybody needs to like wash clothes, for example, and the process of washing them by hand and then hanging them out to dry on a clothesline is incredibly inefficient. I am interested okay, then, then switch in the it types to of a, household a laundry, appliances. A laundry machine. What if I can afford no, a laundry but, machine but, but no house to put it I'm, in? But, I'm about to get to that, but the point that I'm making is an important one, which is that these things have been liberators largely for women. Um, nothing is more feminist than inventing the washing machine. Uh, this has actually been a huge boon to uh, female participation in the labor force and to the ability for women to basically not be constrained by all of the household chores the way that they used to be in the 1950s. That is a huge win. But I think in terms of looking at rising rents uh, and the difficulty of affording home purchases, the blame lies not with market forces or, or you know, whatever people are attempting to blame it on, or, or the ultra rich. Sometimes people will sort of attempt to draw this very tenuous connection between, like, I can't afford the type of apartment that I want, and the uber rich are to blame. When in reality, the thing to blame is the fact that localities like Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York or Washington D.C. or even in Austin, Texas, have made it so hard to build new housing. They have anti-density restrictions and all kinds of land use restrictions that make it harder and harder to have urban infill, um, to have uh, higher story units, that make it harder and harder to get permitting, that make it so that supplies, uh, you know, supplies are, are increasing in price by the day. There are all kinds of regulations placed by city governments primarily, not to mention the role that NIMBYs play in this. Uh, you know, the many, many uh, typically progressive voting homeowners who attempt to block new construction in their neighborhoods, specifically new construction that will bring poorer people in, so lower cost new construction. You look at the housing crisis in the United States, and I think it's very easy to pin blame 
Uh, and I think we need to be really clear about uh, what policy levers need to be changed in order for that to improve, because it's crucial that people be able to afford apartments and houses. Yeah, I, I think a lot of folks would be happy to look at zoning and other kinds of factors that are preventing building of low-income housing. There is a lot of market at play there as well, of course, where the people who construct houses want to make higher uh, rented houses, uh, higher uh, houses for higher earners, um, because it it enters to their profit of benefit, right? And they have to be oftentimes coerced, um, provided incentives through taxpayer dollars by municipalities to include low-income housing as part of their plans, even as so much high-income housing sits empty, used for vacations and the like, um, as pied-à-terres all around the country. Many housing advocates point out that there is not an actually a housing crisis in terms of a deficit. If you were actually were to fill all of the empty homes in America, there would be enough room to go around. However, the issue is affordability. It's also worth noting that, of course, during the pandemic, when so many Americans were struggling, we saw the rich increase their wealth exponentially. During that time, Wall Street was purchasing hundreds and thousands of single-family homes um, in a way that dramatically drove up rental prices, again, for profit. Um, we saw, uh, of course, billionaires increase their wealth by, I believe, 62 percent during the pandemic, again, while everyone was struggling. And now there's a robust conversation happening about how greedflation has driven up so many of uh, the costs like food, um, et cetera, where companies were able to exploit the news about supply chain crises to charge more than they actually needed to to recoup profits. So there's a lot of things going on here at the same time. The question is, from a policy perspective, and in the context of this article, are we ever going to look to the fact that there is this relationship between banks, Wall Street, venture capital funds buying up housing? There is this relationship between um, corporations deciding to prevent a lobby against uh, increased minimum wages, having so many employees at these big uh, firms like Walmart on public benefits while their CEOs are taking home record profits. When people know they're working as hard as pre previous generations and aren't getting the same um, benefit from the social, social bargain, is the blame endlessly going to be put at the put at the feet of hardworking American workers, or at any point, are any of the corporatists who are lobbying Congress and the people in Congress themselves that are being corrupted ever going to be held responsible for changing the social contract in a way that no longer benefits people today as it did in previous generations? I, I, I think you're placing the blame at the hands of the incorrect people. You were talking about greedflation, and I think it's worth uh, talking about how, you know, utterly comical of a term that is. It is, this is something that Elizabeth Warren has really been focused on lately. This has been her little hobby horse. Uh, but it's not as if uh, turkey producers or egg producers, two of the groups that he's, she specifically singled out, suddenly became so much greedier and are attempting to price gouge customers. Uh, the main thing that is making it so that it is hard Harder than ever before for people, or harder in recent memory, for people to afford their grocery bills is because of inflation, which is pretty directly linked to the amount of uh, pandemic era spending that both Trump and Biden did. This is a bipartisan no, no, no. problem. There was far too but much Liz, spending during that time. And we also, during the pandemic, I think it's important to suss out, like we saw, sure, we saw record gains for, you know, the, the upper class. But then a lot of those gains were wiped out. Have you looked at your stock market portfolio recently? This is not I, I something. I don't have a stock market this, this portfolio, Liz. And most Americans lots, aren't looking at those kinds lots, of things lots, as indicators you know, of their own wealth. Lots, lots of Americans have stock market portfolios, and lots of them have seen those 
stocks take a ginormous hit over um, the last year. This is not something where it's as if the, you know the the rich are just constantly uh, using all kinds of finding ill-gotten gains uh, in all kinds of places. This is something where you know policymakers I think bear a lot of the blame. And you look specifically at housing costs, which I don't think it's like this this BlackRock scheme or whatever people are attempting to make it out to be. Um, you know, developers are incentivized to build homes for uh, middle income people because they want uh, high occupancy rates, right? They don't want vacancy rates, so they don't want to be building for a class of people um, of which there are far fewer. They want to be ensuring that vacancy rates are extremely low. And so if you look at some of the basic incentives at play, I just think a lot of the media narratives end up kind of being myths. So Liz, you defined inflation. You said that the price of eggs rose because of inflation. The price of not eggs because, rising not is because produ- right well, because of the supply chain crisis. Suddenly, but came greedy, right? Like I think that no, that's no, no. the important thing to talk I, about. I heard Elizabeth you. Has, okay. the, the point I'm trying to make is that inflation is the price rising. That is what we're describing when we're saying inflation. So there's a kind of circular logic that's happening here. And of course, it 100% is the case that supply chain crisis caused costs to go up. The greedflation argument, for those who aren't familiar with it, is that they use, that corporations use the reality of there being legitimate supply chain issues to raise prices more than what they actually had to to recoup the same profit. So their profit margins, and this is not an opinion, this is well documented. The, the, the profit margins grew even as the crisis was at its worst, precisely because they could disguise their increased profits under the auspices of saying, well, we had to do this because the, the, the pandemic was ongoing. And then to your last point, Liz, about how this isn't about like individual greed and the rich, well, let's, let's just read. It's worth reading just a point. Let's stay on that point because I think it's an interesting one, and I think people of you know a sound mind uh, can totally disagree on this. Um, the thing that's crazy to me about that is that we don't know the inner workings of these companies, right? So there's always but, but Liz, this we, law of unintended consequences. We that actually is at do play. know because we have uh, people admitting well, well, as much in their well, earnings calls. This is very well documented, Liz. Well, like this isn't an well, opinion well, piece here. The people that we have, have these to, CEOs have saying in their earnings calls, we were able to get more profit because we were able to use the pandemic as a, as a cover. We, we know this to be well, true. I think in order for this to be productive, we both have to be allowed to speak. Uh, you know, I have read a lot of these things, too. I am pretty learned about this type of thing. What I am saying is that I always go back to the law of unintended consequences, and I think... What are some of the things happening within these companies behind the scenes that we are perhaps unaware of? So you look at, for example, uh, you know, a, a related concept, raising minimum wage is on a company basically means that a company will have to get that money from somewhere, or they will have to lay off some workers in order to pay other workers higher amounts than what they would otherwise do. Or it will cut into their profits in some other way, or it will cut into the amount of money that gets reinvested in the company. But it's not just as simple as, oh, well, they're just these greedy bastards, and so you know, suddenly we mandate that they pay people a little bit higher, and all the wheels keep spinning and everything goes off without a hitch. That's just not how it works, and that's an overly simplistic understanding of how businesses work. And by the same token, we don't know what types of things are going into their their decisions uh, that if, that influence the degree to which they are interested in um, raising prices, perhaps because, like for example, if they're encountering lots of supply chain turmoil, turmoil does that mean that they then have to? Uh, increase the amount that they're paying for shipping costs? Does that mean they have to stock greater amounts of the product than ever before? Does that mean there's additional waste because we see products like eggs sitting in ports and possibly going bad over that time? There are all kinds of unseen 
components to this. And so I just don't think it is as simple as these egg producers suddenly discovered greed and suddenly liked well, money. That's as what of no one's the saying, but if you years. want to mischaracterize my argument, you're free to do so. Here's a quick clip from the actual article that we're talking it. I about. To fully, I don't want to mischaracterize it. I want to operate fully in good faith, and I want to actually talk about the substance of it. I, I think that's fine, but what I want to I get back to, to the say, article. I, I've said I've said what I've said, and people can Google the earnings statements of CEOs admitting exactly this. I don't feel like we need to keep going over it. But from the article we're talking about here in the New York Times, to your earlier point about how this isn't about individual greed. It actually details quite specifically the ways the tax code has been written to enable the wealthy to keep their, um, their wealth away from the same kind of taxes that working class Ordinarily, ordinary people have to pay. It says high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals, those with at least five million and twenty million in cash, are easily cashable assets. They make up only one point five percent of all households. Together, they constitute forty two percent of the volume of these ex expected wealth transfers that we're talking about through two thousand and forty five. The scale of the transfer is made possible in part by the U.S. tax code. Individuals can transmit up to twelve point nine million to their heirs during life or at death without federal estate tax. As a result, although high net worth and ultra net worth, uh, ultra high net worth individuals could inherit more than 30 trillion by 2045, their prospective taxes on estates and transfers is a mere 4.2 trillion. So those are the kind of structural issues that some people are saying are rigged by the people who've written our system. Some people say, I guess, uh, we're all we're all uh, on our own, and I'm not sure what, how you would respond to that, Liz. How people should look at the way that working class people tend to pay a smaller portion, uh, sorry, larger portion into taxes because more affluent people avoid having income to begin with and also have these benefits of the tax code that allow them to do these massive transfers of wealth. I think I would point you toward the, similar to the point that I was making before about how there are complexities that I think people frequently uh, fail to understand. One thing I think about is how will people respond to such incentives? And if the ultra rich become taxed at a far greater rate, you know, what type of capital flight will we see? This is something that I think a lot of European countries have really experimented with. And, you know, if they've they've changed their uh, estate tax amounts or they've changed their income tax amounts and what they've seen by and large, um, I believe France experimented with this, though I'm, I'm not super up to date on that. Uh, you know, they many of these countries reversed this decision because they saw such an increase in capital flight and people uh, basically deciding, well, if I have the option of, you know, shopping around for 150 different places where I could feasibly ba base myself, 150 different countries or wherever, um, where I could settle my fortune, why would I stay in this place that's treating me like a cash cow? So there's the question of what types of unintended consequences result from that. Are you worried about capital flight and the experiments that other that European countries have had with this? No. I'm worried about working people who can't afford groceries and homes in the richest I'm, country in the history of the world. I'm absolutely worried about them, too. And I think that this is something that so frequently people on the left attempt to caricature conservatives and libertarians as. Of course I'm worried about them. That's why I'm interested in, I pay a ton of attention to the regulations that are driving up housing supply costs and making it so that there's a housing supply uh, crisis right now. Uh, I think to act as if we're not concerned with this is pretty dishonest. And frankly, yeah, I, there's- No one there, put any words, Liz, I didn't public, say a thing about what you were concerned policy. with. You asked me what I was concerned with, and I answered you. I didn't make any cast any aspersions about you or your beliefs, to be clear. Well, okay, I am just I am just clarifying 
public policy is a careful balancing act between ensuring that we are paying attention to unintended consequences that might result from policy decisions, but also attempting to make sure that the poorest among us have access to the incredible splendor uh, wrought by capitalism. And you're right, by being one of the wealthiest countries in the history of the world. It's astonishing the wealth that we have in America, and we need to ensure that people have access to their basic needs and ideally much more than just their basic needs being met. So I think all people, um, if they're decent in the United States, are pretty interested in that. They just have very different uh, views as to how to get there. The wealthiest country in the history of the world, 62% of billionaires saw their wealth grow during the pandemic. Weigh in on the comments, let us know if we think that there's something that should be done at a legislative level about this sort of thing, local level, et cetera, or rising after this. Looks like the problems facing the digital publishing world aren't going anywhere. Vice News has announced bankruptcy on Monday. Uh, there has been a years-long dissent, according to a piece in the New York Times. It seems as though a bunch of vice lenders, including Fortress Investment Group and Soros Fund Management, are poised to acquire the company for about $225 million. The company was once valued at $5.7 billion, but like many similar media companies, they bet poorly, anticipating that the rise of media outlets like Facebook were going to funnel a, new, a large number of new young viewers to these more youth-centered um, media outlets. And, and as it turns out, it seems that the advertising model meant that companies like Facebook were able to capture all of the profit uh, before the news companies could actually get a piece. So we're looking down the barrel of yet another collapsed news agency. Liz, what do you make of this one? I mourn the death of like old school Vice, but frankly, Vice has been garbage for like the last six, seven, eight years now. Uh, I think actually uh, the the failure of MTV News, which was publicized, I believe, last week, mm -hmm. uh, is something I've taken a little harder because both Vice and MTV News, like back in like the 90s and even like the early 2000s, were more these like glorious bastions of like at least Vice, like really interesting gonzo journalism, all kinds of basically little cub reporters out there just doing crazy crap uh, with people and finding all these like weird niche subcultures and really immersing themselves in it. And I think by the same token, MTV News was really interesting because they always really put the music first. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it was definitely focused on politics and catering to a younger audience. But there was a, a um, subversiveness to both media brands really, really early on in their days. And I think at least for Vice, that really disappeared. It became much more sort of like gawkery, splintery, sensationalist, like lefty crap uh, in a way that became a little bit boring and predictable. So I haven't really been interested in Vice for like the last seven or eight years. Maybe I'm just getting older uh, or maybe it's just like kind of crappy. So it makes sense that they're declaring bankruptcy. That's interesting. I mean, the New York Times piece details some of the substantive issues that Vice has faced. Apparently, there were a number of sexual harassment claims around 2017. What stands out in my mind is that uh, co-founder of Vice, Gavin McInnes, became left Vice and became the founder of the Proud Boys, um, which kind of made a lot of people question what the politics of Vice really were to the extent that it had a reputation of being left-leaning. Uh, here was one of its co-founders being very much uh, right-leaning, and there was a period of time around the early Trump era where they had done an investigation, um, a series of interviews um, with um, what's this, the, 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 the famously um, 
conservative uh, right-wing guy who was well-dressed, and I'm blocking his name. Um, but the, the fact that they oh, seem Milo to be— Oh, No, no. He's straight and clean-cut and— no frosted tips. I don't, I'm just, I'm doing a brain freeze. I'll, I'll Google it in a second. They definitely have done a lot of interviews with like militias and Steve Bannon and Milo Yiannopoulos. Like I, my friend, um, Michael Moynihan, who was working for Vice's documentary wing, very much um, not in any way agreeing with these people, but very much like sat down for interviews and did a lot of investigative reports with these folks. Uh, maybe yeah, it was, Richard, it was Richard Spencer. I remember that they got a lot oh, of pushback for right. doing an almost, some people characterize it as flirty interview. I don't know that that's necessarily fair to the reporter, but, uh, and, mm -hmm. and so there, there, there is this kind of ideological confusion about, you know, is it, is it actually a left-leaning site that is trying to understand the, the Trump moment that we were in back then, or was there some something left in the DNA from um, Gavin McInnes that was still there and that led people who thought it was a left-leaning site to not trust the site as much anymore? I'm not sure. I think that's an interesting theory. I sort of look at its uh, start as sort of this, like, booze and coke-fueled Montreal punk zine, essentially as the real thing that was sort of in its DNA early on. The McKinnis trajectory is fascinating because he sort of had these very alt-righty leanings for, he's had those for a very long time, right? Mm -hmm. Like, as far as I understand it, uh, Gavin McKinnis has sort of long been this um, very sort of like fascist contrarian figure um, and, you know, very interested in aligning with those types. But I do think to some degree, Vice's documentary work, uh, they were really interested in a way that many other organizations weren't in sitting down, for example, with these like strange paramilitia, paramilitary groups. Um, I recall an investigation specifically with one in Georgia, I believe, where it was interesting them attempting to sort of actually go and interview and talk to these people that, you know, circa 2015, 2016 were a big part of what people were concerned about with the rise of Trump. And I think there's something very valuable about that sort of shoe leather reporting of going and actually interviewing these weird subcultures that the rest of us don't really understand. Um, yeah. But, you know, Vice has a ton of different divisions uh, that are all completely disparate from each other. And it seems as though perhaps there was even internal disagreement as to what type of place they wanted to be. I'm sure there was. I mean, that's the thing. Every time there's a story about one of these news outlets dying, there can be a kind of... Um, cheering based on the, the, your ideological priors. I saw people like Tim Pool celebrating the, the fall of vice. And certainly, as a leftist, I find very little reflected in my own personal beliefs in a lot of the institutions that are failing. But it is also the case that the cause of um, a lot of journalistic institutions falling is, I think, a concern. It should be a concern to everyone. Um, having Fewer and fewer avenues for, for profitability means you're going to get fewer gumshoe journalists. You're going to get fewer, less and less local reporting, and you're going to get a small number of elite media actors having full control over what we all hear and see, and the advertiser's role in affecting what they decide to broadcast becomes even more pronounced when there is, aren't a diversity of options and competitors in the space. And so th there is a broader question of, is anyone going to be able to hack how to survive in media if you're someone not named the New York Times, who really has a lock on the subscription model in a way that other kind of outlets, I mean, everyone can't pay $8 a month to 10 different outlets every every month. So how are smaller 
journalists, journal, journalistic institutions expected to survive in this? Yeah, it's been really interesting seeing this almost culling where some of the prominent figures at different uh, publications, uh, sometimes contrarian voices have in a sense either been pushed out or sort of self-exiled and shifted to Substack, which is really interesting. You saying paying $8 a month uh, for a bunch of different uh, to a bunch of different publications made me think of how I always have to go through and ensure that I'm not spending a so much money uh, at Substack because I'll accidentally subscribe. I'll subscribe to all my friends and I'll subscribe to a few things I'm interested in. And before I know it, I'm spending, you know, 75 bucks a month uh, on things that I may or may not be reading. But I think it's really interesting seeing New York Times sort of emerge as the top dog with the subscriber model, seeing a lot of uh, publications shifting to this uh, nonprofit newsroom model, uh, the way that ProPublica sort of started. Uh, I know ProPublica, Texas Tribune, there are a bunch of really interesting publications doing that type of thing. But fundamentally, will we see more of this boring corporate sameness when publications like Vice uh, file for bankruptcy and get bought by these like massive conglomerations of uh, all kinds of sort of media stewards? I, it's hard for me to say what will happen, but I think, you know, something will be lost. Yeah. Well, it does seem like for the time being, uh, Vice operations are going on uh, as usual. They've secured a $20 million loan to keep operating Vice pending sale. So we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens after that. More rising after this. Governor Greg Abbott has sent a busload of migrants to Vice President Kamala Harris's Washington, D.C. home. This as illegal crossing at the U.S.-Mexico border have plummeted after the expiration of Title 42, the pandemic-era rule that allowed officials to quickly expel asylum seekers at the border. Here's News Nation reporter Jorge Ventura reporting from El Paso, Texas. Let's watch. Officials were expecting a huge spike in illegal crossings following the lifting of Title 42 here in Texas. Officials were anticipating up to 13,000 illegal crossings per day, but illegal crossings along the southern border have plummeted. This in the days leading up to the expiration of Title 42, Border Patrol agents apprehended more than 30,000 migrants in a three-day span. CBP sources confirming to News Nation that Border Patrol agents apprehended roughly 6,300 migrants on Friday, the first day after the lifting of Title 42, and on Saturday, agents apprehended 4,300 migrants, a significant decrease compared to earlier in the week. Now, for migrants entering the U.S. now in between the ports of entry will now face stricter consequences that include deportation and a multi-year ban from re-entering the U.S. under the years-old Title VIII policy. Now, according to migrants who spoke to News Nation, human smugglers also communicated to migrants that stricter asylum restrictions are to come after May 11th, creating a pre-surge ahead of the lifting of Title 42. So, of course, Title 42 was uh, an old rule um, that Trump implemented that was intended to prevent um, viruses, pathogens from coming over the, 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 the border, whatever border. Um, and despite some other COVID-era policies, which folks have been very uh, enthusiastic about coming to an end, there has been a reversal of the position on Title 42, whereas many um, people who lean conservative have wanted it to stay into effect, because what it meant is that uh, people who were making asylum claims could be turned away despite our legal asylum process uh, and more quickly discharged uh, from the border without the same provisions um, that asylees are allotted. People anticipated that when t uh, Title 42 went away, that there was going to be the surge across the border. It seems like that is not, at least in the short term, the case. What do you make of this all, Liz? 
I think we need to be drastically increasing the number of people we let seek asylum in the United States. I mean, fundamentally, we have <clears throat> people fleeing all kinds of countries uh, that are just in states of utter chaos and disrepair. Uh, people fleeing Venezuela, people fleeing Cuba, people fleeing cartel violence in Mexico and El Salvador. Uh, it is hard not to look at this footage and see mothers holding young children. I, I saw one image that was, I believe, a mother or a father holding a three-month-old child, um, effectively a newborn, attempting to cross the Rio Grande, holding the child up to ensure that uh, they wouldn't be touching the water. Children going without diapers for uh, without clean diapers for days on end, waiting at the border, trying to be let into this country. I'm sorry, but it's hard for me to see anything other than a moral imperative to allow these people in and to improve our capacity to process these asylum claims. Libertarians like myself fundamentally believe in the free movement of people and goods across borders. And it is hard for me to look at this situation and frankly, not get angry at conservatives uh, who are anti-immigration uh, or immigration restric restrictionists and uh, feel a certain sense that we have a profound moral duty to take care of these people and to process them quickly and in a way that is humane. Yeah, Donald Trump was asked about this at the CNN town hall last week, and I think it was frustrating to some on the left that you know people are able, politicians across the political spectrum, are able to give these answers that uh, really tap into the kind of cultural lines around immigration and say, I do want 42, I don't want 42. I do want a wall, I don't want a wall. But very few are attendant to the causes of various immigration waves, including U.S. intervention and coup staging in countries like Venezuela, where the U.S. has been opposed to democratically elected, often left-leaning socialist governments, and as a consequence has longstanding sanctions that have really contributed to life being um, intolerable in those kinds of countries. I mean, what do you say, Liz, to folks that say America doesn't have the capacity to take on uh, a, an infinite number of immigrants, that at some point some kind of metric has to be established? Established and that we can't have, quote unquote, open borders. Because I think there's, there's going to be a lot of folks in the audience who say, well, who, who's, going to, who's going to stand up for the, the interests of, uh, of Americans here? Yeah, I really dislike uh, that so much of this conversation has centered around the open borders rhetoric. I just don't think it is very concrete, uh, very sub substantive, and very helpful. Um, what I think, at least my personal views, are we need to drastically increase uh, all of our visa allotments, and we need to drastically increase the number of people who we let into this country and allow to seek asylum here. Um, I'm talking, you know, massive, massive increases, and I think it's fair to talk about how to scale up uh, these amounts over time to ensure there's not, a, you know, a huge shock to the system. But I think we would be better served by having a conversation that is more focused on how it is frequently in the best interests of Americans to let more and more migrants in. If you're a conservative who's worried about falling fertility rates and, you know, the working women not having enough kids these days and this whole thing, or you're worried about declining religiosity among younger people, okay, well, you know who has, a, you know, on average, uh, a lot of kids and uh, attends church frequently? Uh, Mexican Catholics who are waiting at the border trying to be let in right now. Um, I'm not saying we ought to give Mexican Catholics uh preferential treatment specifically, but I'm saying like on average, you look at, uh, you know, patriotism among uh, many, many recent immigrants, you look at the degree to which so many people are entrepreneurial and hardworking and just looking to make a better life for their kids. I mean, look, 
I had a newborn recently. Uh, it is hard enough recovering from childbirth and taking care of a newborn. The idea of making a harrowing journey across the Rio Grande or across the, the desert in Arizona in order to attempt to get a better life for your kids. I mean, I can't even imagine how horrible their circumstances must be in their home countries for that risk to be assumed. My God. And then to possibly still be turned away at the border or still be caught and deported, um, to have to interact with coyotes and cartels and possibly pay people off. I mean, it just shows you the level of commitment to seeking a better life for their families. I mean, my God, do you see this as a moral imperative? What's what's your idea for how we ought to best handle this situation? Yeah, I mean, one thing that has frustrated me a great deal, I was no, uh, certainly not an immigration attorney, but I did have uh, one pro bono immigration case that I handled, was the long period of time that folks have been complaining about the fact that there's not enough administrative and legal support at the border to handle these claims. So part of what gets missed, I think, in the conversation about Title 42 was that it, it created an expedited process because it circumvented what are our typical obligations, our legal obligations to process asylum claims and let people go through the legal process of making the case that they have been persecuted on the basis of their uh, race or religion or political opinion or whatever, basis on which we are proud as a country usually of allowing people to escape where they've come from and come and make a new life in America. And Title 42 circumvented that process and allowed us to just say, we're not taking anybody in, there's a pandemic, goodbye. Um, and so the fact that that is a basic capacity issue that has existed for years and decades and there has, haven't been investments into actually processing those claims on the border is deeply frustrating. Moreover, as I mentioned before, I think the inattention to the role that American foreign policy has played in creating a number of these um, immig immigration crises needs to be focused on a lot more. And I think increasingly we're going to see that um, global environmental shifts cause mass migrations that are going to, you know, cr create crises again at our borders. And so again and again, yeah. all of us, we live in a global world now. And the idea that there can be these um, historical senses of what a border is and what our global responsibilities are, it's, it's just an anachronistic way of looking at things. You're completely right, and I think you're totally right to talk about the um, border processing capacity and how a lot of people aren't aware of just how uh, completely screwed up that system is. Reason Magazine a few years back ran a piece uh, entitled, There Is No Line. And to me, this is the best way to sum up what's going on, uh, whether you're you know, applying for an H-1B visa uh, or whether you're a high-skilled worker or a low-skilled seasonal, seasonal worker, whether you're seeking asylum there's definitely a huge issue where I think people in their minds have this idea that there's a line and people need to lawfully immigrate and simply just get into the line. And it's like, it's not nearly that simple of a process at all. Um, you know, many people uh, attempt to do things the right way and don't actually uh, get any sort of response and are dealing with glitchy apps at the border like what we're seeing right now. Uh, this is a horrible situation where there are so many people who don't want to break the law and don't want to enter the U.S. in an illegal manner and then have, you know, a very tenuous situation. It's much harder to find work and much harder to find housing and much harder to get your kids enrolled in public schools if you did cross illegally. So they don't have an incentive 
you know, they, they do have an incentive to cross illegally, I suppose, if it's the only thing available to them, if it's the last resort. But I think there are lots of people who don't want to do that. And I wish we mm. offered them more legal pathways to come into this country. Mm. Well, Liz, that does it for us today. I want to thank you so much for filling in for Robbie. It was a pleasure as always to host with you. Thank you so much. It was great seeing you. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow.